0: Today we're going to be uh, in Genesis. We only have a couple sermons left in the series. We're going to be in chapter 11 today. And as, as we get ready to look at the biblical text, we're going to be looking at the, the Tower of Babel. You guys are probably very familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel. You probably know it well. But as we approach this text today, the lens I want us to put on is simply this. like What, what is the aim... So God inspired Moses to write Genesis. So, so, so there's a human author, but ultimately God is the divine author. And when God inspired these nine verses to be written, it's a, it's a reflection of a historical event, but it's also the living word of God. What was the emphasis and the aim that God had in inspiring these words? And you today we gather here, and we want to put ourselves under that word to hear the very thing God wants us to hear. So that's the question we're asking, is what was God trying to convey to us, what is God conveying to us in and through His Word here? And as I think as we look at this text, we're going to see that God in His grace uh, will undo godless plans. We're going to see that God in His grace will undo godless plans. As I was thinking about that kind of big idea for the sermon, I, I got myself thinking about my own personal life. I was just visiting with Mike over here. My first career out of college, I was a teacher. My wife and I dated in college, we were both education majors, we both did sports, and when I realized the NFL wasn't going to come calling after college, I got a job teaching high school in Idaho, up in the mountains, a little town called McCall. And my first job was a high school FIAD teacher. I had a head football coach, and I coached wrestling and track and, and weights. I wore the short shorts. I had the whistle. I had all of it. I was like your proverbial FIAD teacher. And uh, my wife and I were excited. She was the head basketball coach, the assistant volleyball coach, assistant track coach. We were, like, fully embedded in this little community. And, you know, a small little town, uh, about maybe 2,500 people, high school had about 400 kids. Like, like, we were just embedded in this little town. And we got married, and real quick, we began to see a vision for our future. Becky and I thought, oh, this is what we're going to do. This is our life. We're going we're gonna to teach. We're going to embed in this little beautiful community in the mountains. And I, I got really kind of into the idea of, of taking all of the passions that I had placed in being a competitor. I wanted to now funnel that into being a coach. And I wanted to be a champion. And I had all these these, these visions of grandeur, of, of, of coaching a team that would become a dynasty and I was going to all these coaching clinics, I had a great staff, was really envisioning what that would look like. And after year two of coaching, I picked up our, our weekly newspaper, and the, the headline, I don't remember the exact words, but it said, Paul Steven, that's me, uh, loses his job because of uh, declining student enrollment. So I, I found out through the newspaper that I got fired. And, and, and it was a, a small school district, uh, declining students, funding was down, last guy hired, first guy fired kind of thing. And I can remember I was 25 years old looking at this newspaper thinking, well, now what? What am I supposed to do? I just moved my wife. We got married here. We moved here. Our, our plans were to embed and live in this little community. Uh, looking back on it now... I recognize that God was, God was in the destruction of my plans. My plans did not involve him. They were plans that involved me. I recognize that God in his grace undid my lofty plans. You see, God in his grace will undo godless plans. I wonder if you and I were to sit one-on-one and have a conversation, if you were willing to trust me with some of the inner thoughts of your life, if you were willing to share with me some of the things you've experienced over the course of your life, I wonder if you'd have a story to tell about how maybe in your life at some point, as you look back through, with the benefit of history and the benefit of knowing how God worked things out, if you can look back at painful seasons in your life, if you might see moments or seasons in your life where God graciously undid your plans that were godless. Maybe you didn't realize they were godless at the time, but with history, as you look back, maybe you can see moments like that. Perhaps He undid a relationship that dest- devastated your heart, but you recognize now it was an ungodly and an unhealthy relationship. Maybe he took away a career that was causing you to careen away from him. Maybe God stripped away your sense of self-sufficiency. Maybe he dismantled a secular worldview, and he made you aware that you could not be your own savior. Painful at the time, but maybe with the benefit of history, you're able to see that God and his grace undid your godless plans. Would you open up to Genesis chapter 11? We're going to read the first nine verses. You have journeyed through Genesis uh, since November with us at Heritage, and we've seen creation, and we've seen fall. We've seen in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as God was speaking a curse over the serpent, God said to the serpent that the, the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent. And then God, and that's the first preaching of the gospel. And then God curses Adam and Eve. They learn that they're going to die because of their sin. But you know, the first thing that Adam does in Genesis chapter 3, after he learns that his sin will result in death, the first thing he does is he names his wife Life. That's incredible to me. As they, as they listen to God speak a curse over the serpent, and as God is speaking to the serpent, he says, the seed of Eve will crush your head. What, what Adam and Eve heard was that even though we have a death sentence, God has made a promise to preserve and bring life one day through the seed of Eve. So the first thing Adam does is name his wife life. But the effects of sin were profound. We get into Genesis chapter four. Cain slaughters his brother Abel. We look at the line of Cain. It results in Lamech at the end of chapter four, where Lamech kills a young man for daring to touch him, and he brags about it. Human depravity is awful in Genesis 4. Chapter 5, we see a genealogy that leads us up to, to Noah. And then in Genesis chapter 6, we saw the depravity of humankind, sexual perversion so pervasive that there was not a single person except one on the face of the earth that wasn't fully and entirely just ensconced in sin. And so God, in his grace, brings floodwaters. He preserves Noah and his family. Genesis chapter 8, Noah steps off the flood after the world has been decreated and then recreated. Noah gives an offering to the Lord. God makes a covenant with Noah, puts a sign in the sky. You have this great hope with a rainbow in the sky that this new Adam, this Noah, things were going to be different. And then chapter 9 dashes all of that. Noah gets fall down drunk. He's naked in his tent. And his son Ham looks upon his nakedness and we see that human depravity is still intact after the flood. And that brings us up to Genesis chapter 10. Sam preached last week, the table of nations. We see how from from Shem and Japheth and Ham, all the nations of the world. And we see the nations being spread across the world. And we get to chapter 10, and we have a little anecdotal story that's embedded somewhere in chapter 10 chronologically. Let's read. 1 through 9, chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, They are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. They left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, I just ask as we, as we dig into your word, as we look at this, this scene, this scenario, this narrative. God, this is your word. God, would you give us eyes to see? God, would you give us a heart to understand, to comprehend the things that you are speaking into us today? God, I pray that you would open up blinded eyes, that you would soften hardened hearts, that you would loosen up deafened ears, and that, God, we would hear your word. We would hear your words. God, may it stir within us. May it create conviction that we may confess and repent and worship you, God. God, sanctify us in this place today. Mold us, shape us, have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at this text, uh, there's, there's just the structure is absolutely astounding of these nine verses. I wish I would have seen this entirely on my own, but a scholar named Kent, he was actually helped me to see the structure here of this passage. It's what's called a chiasm, or it's got a chiastic structure. Now, a chiasm is like an A, B, C, B, A structure, and there's always a centerpiece to a chiasm, and the centerpiece is a hinge, and what's on top of the chiasm is then reflected in absolute perfect opposition below the chiasm. So it forms an arrow, the top, is perfectly reflected in the bottom with there's a statement in the middle that is the, that is the focal point of what the text says. Okay, so here's the tachyastic structure of, of our passage here. Not my work again, Kent Hughes, which I could take credit for it, but I can't. But you see the A, B, C, D, E, F, G... F-E-D-C-B-A structure. I'm not going to unpack all that for you. If you want to take a picture of it, I encourage you to do so because it's super interesting. But you can see as humankind was going about their godless plans, it finishes in chapter 4 Is they're deciding to build a city and a tower. And then we see in chapter 5 or verse 5 that the Lord says, we're going to go down and take a look at what's happening. And then we see what happens in the reverse, the mere the reflection of the top part of the chiasm. We see God systematically undoing every single thing mankind had chose to do in a godless way. And the interesting thing about a chiasm is that it's, it's, this, it's this literary device. And, and the, the, the middle of the chiasm it kind of points us to, it's a cue in the structure of what is the aim, what is the emphasis of the passage. And so it, it, show, it points a giant arrow to the, the main thing God is trying to convey to us. And the main thing God is saying here in verse 5, it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower with which the children of man had built. God was wakened in heaven because mankind was up to some godless deeds. And the, the, the big picture here is that God came down to interfere with, to undo the godless plans that man had made. It's an incredible and meticulously structured bit of scripture. My sermon outline is going to try to reflect this structure in just simply three points. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 again. I'm going to read them, and then I'm going, to give you, uh, I'm going to give you something to think about. Let's read verses 1 through 4 here. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. I gave you a clue earlier. The first thing we see in the building of the Tower of Babel is man's arrogant ambition. The first thing we see is man's arrogant ambition. If you go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, uh, as Noah and his sons were getting off the ark, God sort of reiterated the cultural mandate. And he says to, to Noah and his sons, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We've heard that language back in, the, in Genesis chapter 1 as well. And, and what's the response to God's command to be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth? Well, we read right here uh, that they settle in the land of Shinar. They they do the exact opposite thing that God asks them to do. They they don't want to be dispersed. They want to stay together. So they they are in direct opposition. In their pursuit, in their arrogant ambition, they they begin by being in direct opposition to to the commands of God. And you think about this this picture here. It's kind of an amazing picture, especially in the world in which we live. There is a, a unified people, a unified language. And if you just kind of think culturally, what a cool concept. I mean, our world is so divided right now, so polarized right now, to read of a people that's unified, it's actually kind of an encouraging thing. But rather than promote a godly oneness of faith, we see that as humankind collectively puts their mind to do something together, it's in direct opposition to God, and it moves them directly away from God. Notice what it says in verse 2. that people migrated from the east. If you have a Bible, underline or circle the word east. This is a a word we see all throughout Genesis, and every time we read of the word east in Genesis, it's always a moving away from God and a moving towards self-sufficiency every single time. When Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, there was a a cherubim placed at the Garden east of the Garden of Eden. When when, when Lot left Abram for Sodom and Gomorrah, he traveled eastward. Uh, Back in, in Genesis 25, Abraham's son's has some sons with a concubine uh, Keturah, and when he has these illegitimate sons, they, they, they away from his son Isaac, they, they went eastward to the east country. When Jacob fled his homeland, uh, he went to the land of the people to the east, and so there's this picture, when people go to the east, it's, it's a reflection of them leaving the will of God, leaving the presence of God, setting out on their own apart from God. Kent Hughes says, here in the tower story, the people's eastern migration depicts universal rebellion. They have moved outside the place of blessing and they say, Come, let's, let's do this thing apart from God. Verse 3 Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, for they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And this little sound bite that Moses gives us is interesting. Why does he reflect this or quote this little quote? He's got nine verses that tell this whole story, but he dedicates an entire verse to tell us the means through which they were going to build the ziggurat or this large tower. One as I was reading some of the historical commentary on this, one of the interesting things about the Israelites is they had kind of a a superior building mechanism, especially the original audience that would have been the Israelites at this point, led by Moses. They, they built towers and they built buildings with, with, with Palestinian stone, amazing stone. And it was far superior to, to these baked brick clays and, or these baked uh, brick uh, bricks, clay bricks. And, and the idea would have been is the original audience would have heard that these people who are going to build something apart from God as they would have seen the construction material, these bricks, they would have been like, What? It would have seemed foolish to them. And the idea here, in a satirical way, is that Moses is matching the foolish building practices of the, those in Babel with the foolish decision of their heart to leave God. And their arrogant, their arrogant heart motivation is revealed in verse 4. We, we read that they, they are there to simply make a name for themselves. They're not interested in making a name for God. They're not interested in being obedient to God. It, it, their motive is, is twofold. They want to displace God. Because they want to build a tower to heaven so they don't have to have any dependence on God. And once they're in heaven, they want to become like God. To build a tower that bridges heaven and earth is an attempt to ascend to heaven like God. I love how this Hebrew scholar, he puts it this way about the Tower of Babel. He says, rooted in earth, with its head lost in the clouds, it was taken to be a meeting point of heaven and earth in such a natural arena of divine activity. On its heights, the gods were imagined to have their abode, constituting the obvious channel of communication between the celestial and the terrestrial fears. The sacred mountain was looked up as the center of the universe, the navel of the earth. Maybe you guys grew up with like a big picture Bible. I had this picture in my Bible when I was a kid. Uh, we had this big picture Bible that sat on our, our coffee table. Did you guys ever have that in like one of those big picture Bibles when you were a kid? I used to look at that when I was a little kid and just try to imagine this kind of prehistoric tower and how they built it. And, and, I, and I as a young man, I tried to imagine, could we actually build a tower into the heavens and... Could this even be accomplished? Was there some sort of advanced archaeological or architectural technologies at this time? But at the end of the day, these were just the fickle plans of fickle man to want to be like God. With God displaced, they, they wouldn't need him. They would make a name for themselves, and they would be like God. And as their stated desire unfolds here, I, I'm reminded of what might have been the opposite, right? They say we want to make a name for ourselves, but what's the shadow side of that? Because I think we have the same ambitions, right? There's times in our life we look at our life, we look at our career, we look at our family, we look at the community in which we live, and we think to ourselves, man, I want my life to count. I I want to make sure that my life means something, it amounts to something at the end of the day, We can get off the rails, though, when we start to think about what what, what that really, what's the heart motivation for that. And as these people are saying, let's make a name for themselves, barely under the surface is this fear that, man, we are going to be anonymous. No one's going to remember me. No one's going to care what I did. So the heart motive to make a name for themselves, the fear that that's born out of is a a fear of anonymity. And a couple of years ago, I was in Montana on a backpacking trip with my sister and my brother-in-law and my wife. And we were kind of in this old ghost town I'd never been to before. And as we walk into this ghost town, there's these old dilapidated, you know, cabins probably from a mining establishment back in the late 1800s. And we stumbled onto this old graveyard. I don't even know if it's even on a map. It's in the middle of nowhere in the Pioneer Mountains in western Montana. And we're walking through this old graveyard, and there's just these old wooden headstones. Most of them are knocked down, piles of rocks. And I was just imagining as I'm looking at all this, like, who are these people? As we walked through this, this little uh, ghost town, there was these old cabins. And in one of the cabins, there was actually like a, like, like a lath in plaster. And you could see, even though it had been weathered, but there was like some form of wallpaper. And I was imagining to myself in a mining town in the late 1800s in western Montana. Who had wallpaper? But I was thinking like, but you know what? I started to play a little game in my mind. I'm thinking, you know, here's this little town. It's 1873. And there's the guy who struck it rich. He got the big nugget. He had a big payday. And keeping up with the Joneses isn't just like a modern-day thing. And I can ima—I just imagine the people who had that house and could afford lath and plaster and, 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 uh, and some wallpaper, well, I can imagine they were the talk of the town. And I can imagine that those people who lived in that town envied them and wanted to be just like them. They were, they were, they were making a name for themselves in this little mining establishment. Fast forward 140 years, I'm walking through a graveyard. I can't even see the names on the headstones. Every single person who ever lived in that town has been 100% forgotten by history. No one remembers a single name, not a single name. They could care less who had wallpaper in their house. Man, and I wonder how much of our lives do we spend planning and scheming and plotting to make a name for ourselves that's going to end up as dust. I mean, unless one of us figures out cold fusion or solves world hunger in 200 years, not a single person is going to remember our names. So should we live to elevate our name? Or the name above all names. See, that's what God's getting at here. God in his grace will undo our godless plans because our godless plans lead to dirt. They lead to nothing. They can be torn down. They can rust. Thieves can break in and steal. That's, That's the heartbeat behind this passage. And if we just look across history, we see it over and over and over being played out through history. How many kings have thought themselves divine? I mean, think of the Roman Empire. I mean, I was in, I was in, I was in Israel in 2012, and I'm walking through these old, Roman, these old these Roman Empire ruins. It's like, it's just nothing. It's just a bunch of cobblestones that are barely visible. And yet, back when Caesar Augustus was emperor, he thought he was a god. And people grieved his death as if God had died. How silly. You see, God, in his grace, he will undo our godless plans. And I'll tell you my story. So I, I was teaching, right? Lost my job. I I taught elementary school for a year, wasn't great at it, (laughs) and I took a job driving a forklift for a year in, in McCall, Idaho, I had a daughter, I was working for a ministry called Young Life, I was writing for a bunch of newspapers, I was just doing everything I could to keep my nose above water financially, my wife and I were having kids, and so poor, I mean so poor, going into debt, and then God used that to get me into ministry, and then ultimately I became a youth pastor when I was 26 or 27, moved to Wisconsin to be a youth pastor, and I wish I could say it was a really purely motivated thing, but as I look back on my 27-year-old self getting into ministry, I recognize what I did. I had a lot of worldly lusts. I came from a family where, you know, my my mom was an alcoholic, and we were kind of the poor, kind of laughed-at family in our little town. Both my sisters were homecoming queens, and then they got pregnant in high school, and my brother was in rehab before I got out of high school, and I was the youngest, and it was like, I had a red letter on my forehead, right? So when I, got, when I got to go play football in college, I just chose the college as far away, as far away from Western Montana as I could go. So I go, to, I go to Jamestown College in North Dakota, a small little college, play football, try to make a name for myself, obsessed with fame. People said, you must have loved the game. It's like, no, I didn't really like football. I like seeing my name in the headlines. I love that. That was cool. When I walk in the cafeteria after a good game and people thought I was cool, that's I lived on that. And so when I was teaching, I wanted to be a a state champion football coach. It's not because I wanted great things for kids. It's because I wanted the fame of being a state champion football coach. It was all about me. And then suddenly I'm a youth pastor one day, and I could sanctify my worldly lusts. I could be just as ambitious and just as driven. I could try to build my kingdom and put the name of Jesus on it, and somehow it would be okay. And so I journeyed in ministry with the most gross and self-centered, very hidden ambitions Yes, I wanted the gospel to go forth. Yes, I wanted Jesus to be known. Yes, I wanted people to go from, to death from life. But if I'm honest, and I'm sure God will reveal more the older I get, if I'm honest about my heart motivation in those early years of ministry, it was all about me. And I could just put the name of Jesus on it, and I could somehow live with myself. And then God, and his grace... Moved my family out in Milwaukee, Wisconsin to plant a church where I I, I planted a church for a lot of reasons in Milwaukee. One of the huge reasons I didn't tell anybody for is that we bought a theater that seated 1,000 people. And the first time I stood in that old dilapidated theater and I saw those thousands of seats, it's just so gross. I just thought, how important will I be if 1,000 people gather and listen to me preach on Sunday? How gross is that? And then God, in his grace, began to systematically introduce suffering into my life. He brought loss into my life, difficult, brutal, life-changing, heart-wrenching, life-altering loss. Again, and again, and again, which led to depression, and difficult seasons, and the lament before God. And all that led to a point where I'm sure I'm going to look back on my 45-year-old self, and I'm sure I have just as many gross Lusts in my flesh right now that I'm not fully aware of. But if I, as I look back on a, the, the formative years in ministry, God used it because He's God. But it's just so gross at how much I made that about myself. And I'm thankful for the pain that God has introduced into my life. I'm thankful that God, in His grace, because if He never introduced pain, I'd have had no motive to change. But God, in His grace, has systematically undone my godless plans. And it's a terrifying thing to pray, God, undo my plans that do not honor you because it's painful. And it exposes our idols. But in his grace, he does those things. And and those of us that have lived any number of years, we look back on our life and we're like, oh, that season when I was walking through the valley of the shadow of death and I wanted life to end and I thought God had abandoned me, actually, that was the very moment he was having his way with me. As I walked in the darkness and screamed his name because I didn't think he was there, he was walking by me, he was protecting me with his staff, or his club, and he was guiding me with his staff. The Tower of Babel tells us this story, and that's the second thing I want you to write down. As you look at verse 5, and the Lord came to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This is the, the, the centerpiece of the chiasm, and it tells us that God, we see God graciously intervening. As man is sprinting towards their worldly ambitions, we see God's gracious intervention. They didn't think it was God's gracious intervention. I guarantee you that. But it was God's gracious intervention. In one sentence, the scene shifts from, from the arrogantly ambitions of, of the worldly folk to the divine, uh, sovereign plans of, of a heavenly God. As God looks down, slightly amused at the actions of humankind, he, he comes down. That's a purposeful word. There's satire in this account. As mankind is beating their chest at this great thing they were building, God looks down at it and says, oh, that's cute. cute. They're going to build the heaven. That's that's really cute. I'm going to go down and visit that. I imagine a a dad who is a a developer or an engineer or an architect who who oversees the building of 100-story tall skyscrapers. And he comes home, and his 3-year-old son is playing on the ground with a handful of of mismatched Legos, and he's built a little 6-inch tower. And he says, hey, Dad, look, I'm building skyscrapers too. And dad gets down on his knee, past his head, and says, oh, that's cute, son. That's cute. That six-inch Lego skyscraper next to, next to the Empire State Building is, is what these people, they thought they had done something may, major, and God's like, come on, I'm God. One scholar puts it this way. He says, Yah, Yahweh must draw near to the Tower of Babel, not because he is nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height, and their work is just so tiny. The most magnificent, magnificent efforts of man are puny, in comparison to God. And as we look at God, looking down at the Tower of Babel, he is utterly unimpressed by this little thing man is doing. And dare I say, when we construct our godless plans and we have visions of grandeur, I think God looks at our plans and he is utterly unimpressed with the plans we make apart from him. God in his grace will undo godless plans. So we see man's arrogant ambition. We see God's gracious intervention. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. God's undoing. And the Lord said, Behold, they, the people of Babel, are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So following the scheming and the planning of man, we see God's intent in his intervention. And the third thing I want you to write down is God's humbling correction of man. God's humbling correction of man. Of man, We see him systematically undoing all the stuff that man so feverishly set their hand to do. In verse 1, it says, the whole earth had one language. Verse 9, we read that the Lord confused the language of all the earth. He undid that. In verse 2, we read that the people, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. In verse 8, we read that the Lord disperses them from there all over the face of the earth. He undoes that plan. We see in verse 3 that God, the people saying, come on, let us make bricks. Verse 7, God says, come on, let us go down and confuse their language. Bit by bit, God undoes all that the people of Babel have done. And his actions were motivated by love. I read this week that he was troubled by what would happen to humanity if the human family was left unchecked. They would build up a delusion of self-sufficiency through their false religion, corporate security, and political uniformity. They would throw off God and attempt to rule the universe. And in their delusion, they would never turn to God. Their Babylonian hearts would become impenetrable and irredeemable. And so God intervened. When I was living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is a city that is scarred by racial segregation and scarred by uh, poverty, it's the most segregated city in America. And we did ministry in the heart of that city for nine years. My church was a multi ethnic church. And as I lived in Milwaukee and I saw the, the staggering and heartbreaking effects of segregation that existed in that city and the racial tensions that that created in that city, it was devastating. And it had been devastating for years and years and years, long before I got there. And I watched it. There was all these different strategies employed to try to bring unity. And and, and, governmental strategies and educational strategies and, and community planning strategies. All these different strategies, and it just seemed to get worse over time. It didn't seem like people were actually figuring out how to create unity. And we as a church really felt convicted, and I'm still deeply committed to this conviction, that the only hope that we have for racial reconciliation is if men and women are first reconciled back to God, adopted into the family of God. So as we are reconciled back to God, we can then be reconciled back to one another. I don't believe a community is going to be transformed unless a heart is transformed. Only God transforms hearts. So when God transforms a heart, he then transforms a family and he transforms a neighborhood. And it's through the church and the preaching of the gospel and biblical community that our cities have hope. That's my conviction. And that's, what we, that's the work we put our hand to for years and years and years in Milwaukee. But I remember reading verse 6 years ago when we were in the heart of this work. I was sitting next to my friend, uh, Durr, who was a Hmong immigrant and my friend uh, Kizzy, who was uh, she had been born and raised in Milwaukee, her family was from the South. This African American woman I uh, was sitting next to a Nexus, who was a, who was a Puerto Rican, and, and me, and one of our other pastors, and we're sitting there having this conversation. We somehow stumbled upon to to this story about Babel, in verse six, the Lord said, "Behold, they are a there peop- they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them." And I thought, "Isn't that the goal?" In my naivety, I was like, "Isn't, isn't that?" My, our, our city was so broken, so divided, so segregated, there was no unity. And I read in verse 6, but they're unified, and they have one language. But then I recognized, no, it's a godless unity. It's, a, it's, a, it's an inch deep unity. Has no, there's nothing substantive of this. They were unified in their desire to rebel against God and make a name for themselves. That's not unity at all. God, who saw their plans, would succeed. He moved to rescue them away from those very plans. And he returned them to the land and the blessing that awaited there. One, one scholar puts it this way. He said, God makes it clear that unity and peace are not ultimate goals. Better division than collective apostasy. They're unified in their opposition to God, and that's not unity at all. John Salehammer, another scholar, he points out that although by itself the story of the building of Babel makes good sense as a story of human plans thwarted by God's judgment, the real significance of the story lies in its ties to themes developed in the surrounding narratives within Genesis. And what are those themes? Well, the focus of the author since the beginning of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2, has been both God's plan to bless humankind by providing them with that which is good, but then also humankind's failure to trust God and enjoy the good that he has provided. That's what's really at play in this text. Again and again in Genesis up to this point, human beings have failed to trust God and enjoy the good that only he provides. They just don't trust him. And so as Adam and Eve are in the garden and they've got all this lavish provision, they're convinced that God is holding out on them. And they believe the lie of the serpent and they turn And they make plans, godless plans. And we see that God in his grace will undo godless plans. And so that's our text. We see man's arrogant ambition. We see God's gracious intervention. And we see God's humbling correction of man. Thank God he corrects us. And the heart of the men and women who put their hand to building the Tower of Babel is our heart. Like those tower builders, we also easily give in to our own arrogant ambitions, don't we? We get to building our own towers apart from God, towers of career, towers of relationship, towers of wealth, towers of comfort, towers of accumulation, towers of knowledge. And then God, in his grace, he undoes our godless plans and it hurts, but it's his grace. As I think about the last 15 months, the effects and the implications of COVID, I think of how many plans have been undone in the last 15 months. And it's hurt like crazy. But I want, I, mean, I'm just, I'm not, I want to be cautious not to over-speculate. But I wonder how many godless plans have been undone in the last 15 months. And though it hurt like crazy in the midst of it, it was confusing and hard, I wonder how much God's grace has been interwoven into this pandemic and its implications economically, relationally, spiritually, emotionally. See, the city in which we live, Grants Pass or Medford, Oregon, this is not our final city. We're foreigners here. We are foreigners here. We are aliens. We are sojourners. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This world is filled with the passions of the flesh. This is not our home. The hopelessness of Babel is not the final word here in Genesis 11. The prophet Zephaniah promised that the effects of Babel would one day be reversed, right? In Zephaniah, God is speaking to the prophet Zephaniah chapter 3. He says, for at that time, when God changes this, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to make a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Zephaniah anticipates a day when the effects of Babel will be reversed. And then Jesus, the Messiah, comes. And through the death and resurrection of Christ, He brought a great reversal of Babel. Do you remember what happened at Pentecost? Acts chapter two. Remember what happened when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church. Let me read it for you. Acts two verses four through six. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And this sound, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language You see how Christ ushers in a reversal of Babel. And the Bible anticipates a day in Revelation 7 when every tribe, tongue, language, and people group will be gathered around the throne in unison, worshiping God in unison. And so as we look at Pentecost right here in Jerusalem, we see the reversal of Babel. But guess what? There is a day coming when sin will be forever destroyed and perfect unity will be restored among every city and among the nations. One day, a perfect city, a holy city will descend from the clouds. This city is the antithesis of Babel. This city is the city of God. It is a new Jerusalem. This city and in this city, the nations will unite as God intended. And so here we are today, gathered in in an upper room in Grants Pass, Oregon. And we're fixing our eyes on God's eternal plan. And when we understand his ultimate eternal plans, we are thankful that God does away with our godless plans. They just get in the way. We're thankful that God does away with our godless plans. They just get in the way. We must leave our godless plans. We must give up our God-defying ways. We must put away our proud dreams. We must annihilate our arrogant ambitions. We must never set our mind into making a name for ourselves ever. The greatest thing that could be said of you and me at the end of our life when we breathe our last breath would be to say, He lived in such a way. Or she lived in such a way that the name of Jesus was made great. I'm reminded of the words of John. All who did receive him, who did believe in his name, the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Folks, God in his grace undoes our godless plans. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the men and women you've gathered here in this place. God, I am thankful that you've given us ears to hear, God, and a responsive heart to receive what could be a difficult teaching. And God, I don't mean to be trite when I say I'm thankful that you undo our godless plans. But God, I am. God, I know that, that represents a lot of pain. Because oftentimes we, we, we are constructing plans and we think they're plans that are filled with your will for our lives only to find out later they're not. And so God, I don't want to be trite about this or simplistic about this. But God, I just do pray that you give each one of us, as we evaluate our life, as we think about the way in which we've, we, we are living today... God, would you give us understanding by, by just the promptings and the, the, the kind of the revelation of your spirit, God, what, what, what are the things in our lives? What are the plans in our lives? What are the ways in which we have uh, arrogant ambitions to make a name for ourselves? God, would you take that away from us in your grace? God, would you give us your spirit of submission and obedience, God, that we would live our lives, we would breathe our breaths, we would use our hands and feet and our hours and minutes to, to exalt the name of Jesus? God, thank you that you let us be a part of what you're doing. We love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.